Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a conductor who's at the very beginning of her career. She's appeared as a finalist in competitions as both a conductor and a violinist, and taken part in masterclasses with some of the world's greatest conductors. During the pandemic, she conducted a high-profile jump-in concert with the London Symphony Orchestra, and she's just started as the assistant conductor at the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra in the United States. It's a pleasure to welcome Stephanie Childress. Stephanie, lovely to meet you, to see you. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a real, real pleasure. Um, I'm going to go right back, even though I know you're a violinist, because uh, I've seen you on the telly um, <laughs> playing in the BBC Young Musician of the Year, which we'll come to later. But was the violin the first thing you played? Uh, and do you come from a musical household? The violin actually wasn't the first thing I started on. Um, it was the first thing that inspired me to get into classical music. Um, but I actually started with the piano oh. um, and unfortunately didn't pursue it very seriously, which is something that I, <laughs> as all conductors um, know, you know, piano skills are quite important. So I'm trying to get back to it. But, um, but no, I don't come from a musical family. Um, in a way, they are they are sort of beautifully amusical, um, <laughs> if one could say that. Um, they enjoy a lot of sort of pop music. You know, my mum was sort of an old rocker. My dad was around, you know, when the Beach Boys were were big in the States and stuff. So that's kind of their level of, of musical sort of knowledge. Mm. Um, so I wouldn't say a typical classical music family at all. Much like mine. I mean, you know, uh, I've said it before. Um, it was Johnny Mathis and Cliff Richard in our house. Um, not much classical music at all. Uh, I think in some ways it keeps you grounded a, a little bit. Uh, now, you know, you know, you can go back home and it's not all music, music, music. Um, same, you yeah, know, I'm, I'm... For us, it was mostly, you, you, you mentioned those two. For us, it was Tina Turner and Queen. So <laughs> that gives you a, a spectre of, of, um, of things we were listening to. And so if you started on the piano, when did the violin happen for you? It happened a couple of months later. It was a mm. kind of a deal between my mum and I, sort of five-year-old me and my mum. She said, you know, if you want to learn the, the violin, why don't we just start off with the piano and see how we get along? And I think it was quite, quite a sensible thing to do. I really enjoyed getting to grips with, you know, theory and, you know, some very basic musical knowledge um, through having the keys in front of me. I think that's always very good for a young child if you can sort of visualise the music that you're making. Obviously with the violin, it's it's much more kinetic. Um, mm. So I really enjoyed that. I'm really glad we did that. And um, I should have I should have stuck to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you, you did start on the piano. I didn't start on the piano at all. I went straight for the violin. And so everything was sort of done through the fingers of the left hand, you know, learning about keys and learning about, it was all done through scales and arpeggios. And yeah, I wished I'd had a keyboard background. I don't, um, doesn't mean I can't, you know, sit down at the piano and work out an orchestral score, but I can't play it. I can work it out, but I can't play it. Um, First of all, I don't know which part of the UK you're from, which might mean that you may or may not early, early on have encountered some sort of county music system or city music system. When did that happen, if it happened, and did that mean playing in ensembles at all? Funnily enough, it didn't happen at all. So I was born mm. in London, but spent a couple of years um, in the south of France where there was kind of, you know, in the rural local school. So there was really no music at all. And then I went to, when we eventually moved back to London, um, I went to the French Lycée. And I think the French musical system, my understanding of it is that, you know, if you're good at something, um, you go to a specialized school, mm. whether you're a, a sports person or a music person, that's kind of what you do. So I didn't have a huge amount of music at my school, but in a way that gave me the opportunity to really look for other things outside of music. I think this is something that I still try and try and um, sort of hold, I, I still try and hold true to this idea that, you know, we're, we're so much more than musicians, we're, we're people as well. And in order to feed our music making, we have to go out and experience the world, etc. So the French school was great um, in that sense, because there was hardly any music. And, you know, for anyone who knows the, the French system, I mean, we had, I went to the school in South Kensington, and we had, by the end of my time there, we had four and a half thousand kids. So it's not really personalised um, tuition in the sense no. that I understand a lot of a 
how the English system can be. Um, but thankfully, eventually I enrolled in the junior department of the Royal College of Music. And that was kind of, you know, not only my first, um, you know, my first experience of, of, you know, collective music making, it was also my first experience of English kids. I didn't have a lot of, of English school friends who were all no. French. So um, that was, you know, a culture shock in, in every sense of the word, but hugely enjoyable. Um, by now there well at this point you've now just said it's your first time collective music making so that's chamber music quartets trios but also I would imagine there was a junior RCM orchestra um, did conducting at all enter your consciousness being a conductor or thinking about conducting at this young age or was that something much later on um, I think I mean, I think it's much later on because <laughs> I was 13 when the, um, when the conducting light bulb sort of clicked. Um, but to be honest, for a long time, you know, all throughout my childhood, the last thing I wanted to do was actually become a musician. Um, it was a very serious hobby, but I had other hobbies. I did a lot of, I did a lot of sports for a long time and I did ice skating quite, um, quite seriously and swimming and stuff. Um, so it was kind of always around, but I really, I really thought that was the last thing I'd be doing. Um, I think particularly because the violin for me was a very, I always had a very difficult relationship with the instrument. It's something that I didn't take very naturally to. It took me a while also to find the right teacher for me. Mm -hmm. um, my mum sort of still, still reminisces about how I had nine violin teachers within the space of about 10 years. Um, just because it was very, very difficult to, to find someone with whom I connected. So it was a difficult relationship. I think that's why the idea of even becoming a musician never really popped into my head. But as I said, sort of when I was about 13, 14, that sort of light bulb switched um, on in my head. And not only did I realise that I wanted to be a musician, but I wanted to be a conductor, which was something I'd never really thought about before. So it was all, it was all very sudden. <laughs> beautiful as it was very sudden very unexpected um but yeah delighted it happened well, I'm, I'm gonna go to competitions um because as I said uh, I'd seen you on the telly as we say in the UK um and because you'd reached the final or you were a finalist in the BBC Young Musician of the Year twice 2016 and 2018 string, the string, the string final yes string oh, yeah, category not, final yes yeah, I don't want to yeah there are plenty of people who made it much further who deserve to be mentioned no. properly. <laughs> my it's, fault for, it's the strings final. Yeah, my fault for not being totally specific. But I mean, later on, you then also um, uh, appeared, uh, came second in the La Maestra competition in 2020, which we'll come to when we go back to conducting. But it does mean that you were obviously very, very talented violinist uh, and you were going for competitions. Uh, how much conducting were you doing through this point of your time or was everything really focused on on that violin world and I because I, I know what it's like you know I remember I, I used to be a violinist too um how much focus was there really on on uh competitions like that uh recitals uh all of that stuff that we did or do as violinists yeah it can be pretty all-consuming isn't it yeah. um, <laughs> no um it was interesting because I did my first I, my first young musician when I was in my first year at university um, and I did my my second one when I was in my last year at university and I mean it was it was something that just came around because I'd always wanted to you know to participate in a competition it's not something that I looked for particularly um, but it's it's funny that you mentioned you, you just asked me how much conducting I was doing at the same time and I remember I mean I was doing a lot yeah um, and that's the reason why I chose to go to university and not, you know, music college, because yeah. I just wanted a bit more flexibility um, in terms of the projects that I wanted to take on, the projects that I created. You know, we had some great singers, so we did lots of operas, um, you know, Beethoven 9 in my final year as well. So, I mean, I was doing quite a lot of conducting and I think it was interesting trying to kind of slot BBC Young Musician in, you know, in between my Rape of Lucretia rehearsals, um, you know, and my Beethoven 9 rehearsals and stuff. But 
you know, I just thought I, I applied and when I got in, I just thought, you know, why not go for it? It would be it would be crazy not to. And it's not as though I have a dislike for the violin. I mean, the violin is is my, you know, kind of like my first love. It gave mm. me so much. And it's something that I even now I still refer to, you know, if I'm if I'm doing bowings or if I even want to sort of experiment with the type of string sound that I then want to hear in a string section. It's something that I find extremely useful. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, I would never have just written it off, you know, just as soon as I decided to become a conductor. I think especially being in youth orchestras like the NYO were huge parts of, of my learning and of my development, you know, even as a conductor, even before I was really conducting. I mean, the amount of conductors that we saw that, that sort of went around was was hugely informative and I think as a young person you learn so much more from from watching conductors in a way than than often from doing I mean obviously you then have to start getting a lot of practical experience but as an initial step I think that was hugely very helpful. So where did you go to university and whilst you were there were you being taught conducting did you have a conducting teacher or a mentor or somebody you could speak to whilst you were doing your projects at university? So not really. So I went to um, I went to the University of Cambridge, and I went there because, as I said, I just wanted a bit of a broader um, education than what I thought music college could have offered me. I think particularly because I dropped out of school when I was fifteen. I just thought, you know, I really want a kind of complete education. I want someone somewhere that's going to make me write essays and dissertations and make me do analysis because that's just not what I've had. Um, mm. you know, in my in my primary and in my secondary um, school. I mean, the French system is very different. And I thought, you know, if I want to be working in Britain, I want to sort of get that sort of UK university experience as well. Um, and so that's sort of why I did it. It's, it's a tricky one because you don't actually get any practical um, tuition really um, at Cambridge, I think about five percent of my model included um, of my module included practical performance, but that's that was an elective, um, <laughs> and so we didn't get a lot of. So basically, yeah, no hand. You know, you just have to do your thing on the side and make sure that you you know hand in your essays on time or not, yeah. as I recall, <laughs> <laughs> which was my experience. Um, but I, it, I think it was the right thing for me. Also, just being around people who did a whole host of. Of different subjects was absolutely fantastic. I mean, some of my closest friends are, you know, are now you know work in history of art or mathematicians and stuff. And it's it's amazing actually being able to take. I was able to take you know some of my closest friends to their first classical music concerts and stuff whilst at university. I mean, it, you know, it's it's a very very different experience to what you get at music college. And I think that's really what attracted me to mm. the whole the whole program. So you were doing an awful lot of self-teaching, uh, teaching by doing, uh, which is you know what, what an awful lot of us do is you know setting up you set up your own ensemble in twenty nineteen. Uh, you set up your own ensemble in twenty nineteen called Orchestra Rea, uh, and I read the first concerts of Brahms Requiem. So you know you started nice and easy. Um, so you know you're starting, you're sort of teaching yourself. Uh, and if you know you've been around youth orchestras and whatever, like the National Youth Orchestra, you're going to know what sort of works and what doesn't sort of work, and you're going to find out. Um, technically, you're going to find yourself quite quickly. I think that's a, a major thing. I think all of the conductors who've come on here have said, "Be yourself." So if you're not, you know, going into a school of conducting with somebody who teaches you, you know, for hours a week at piano classes and whatever else, you're just doing it yourself. Well, then that that's you know it's a quick way of, of finding yourself and being yourself you know uh, I didn't really start conducting no, I, was thir I was 35 or, or uh, 32 uh, and you know it were bits of me from all of the people who were conducting me at the time so, but I you know I don't didn't have any lessons in all of that time so so uh, yeah it's, it's an interesting one mm. and so you know how how, how did you do were you, were you self I mean, were you videoing yourself? Were you what? What were you doing? What was your approach to to during all of this time? Well, to come back to your previous question, which I think is also relevant, I managed to find some people who I really trusted, mm. um, some mentors that I really trusted, and that was kind of how I modelled my um, 
sort of the what I needed I think to develop as a musician and as a conductor so mm. you know I I think one of one of the most important mentors in my life still is Colin Metters mm. um, and I know he's he taught a lot of a lot of people um, who've actually appeared on this podcast as well yes um, but he he was a very he is a very important figure um, musical figure in my life as a conductor and I think you know when you surround when you can find people whom you trust um, and who can direct you to you know your problem areas for example yeah. mm. you know that can be very helpful as much as as what we say is true is that you know especially as instrumentalists we kind of know what works we know what doesn't work as a conductor you always need to have a kind of external third gaze third person gaze on you and I think a mentor it can be a very good person to do that because we can't always assess um what we're doing in the most unbiased um <laughs> no, most unbiased way you're and right even, there you know yeah. and even watching <laughs> absolutely you know and even and even watching videos of oneself is sometimes not as useful as having someone else watch the video and say you know, because also yeah, I think a lot of us will say, oh gosh, well, you know, that looks terrible. I don't really know how to fix it. Or, um, you know, we might identify a, the wrong problem actually. Mm. And someone else can actually come in and just say, actually what you, you know, what you're doing is you're bending your knees too much. And that means that your center of gravity isn't, you know, stabilized or whatnot. You know, you need someone who really, who can, who can just have that third person sort of gaze. And I think that's very important. Mm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, yeah, I I loathe watching videos of myself conduct. Um, it's terrible, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's absolutely awful. <laughs> it's just it's a it's yeah. But but when I come to teach, I I use video a lot um, with my pupils, and I love watching them. Uh, and it's a very very easy way of of highlighting problems, or also discovering problems and um yeah I, I i i use it often with pupils but with myself my god i hate it i loathe it um and i think that's also partly because you know you remember performing you remember being in the moment and just doing what you always do to get the results that you, you that you know you can get and sometimes that can lead to bad habits but I still got the results I wanted, you know, so, so you, you know what I mean? You, you know, you're looking at it dispassionately much later and thinking, oh my God, technically that was awful. But actually, if you remember what, what, how the concert went, it went really, really well. So, you know, does it matter? Uh, who knows? I mean, it, it's, a, it's a really tricky one. Who knows? I think it's also very interesting speaking to instrumentalists or people who have performed extensively as instrumentalists before becoming conductors. And I think a lot of what, I don't know what your experience was, but certainly my experience was, you know, okay, this is how I feel on stage when I'm doing my concerto. Um, how do I transfer that onto the podium as a conductor? And that is not often the most um, helpful thing to yeah. be doing, especially as, you know, with an instrument, you have this kind of immediate feedback, whereas with an orchestra, it's much more nebulous. The feedback is can come to you in very in many different forms it's not always immediate and also you know you don't always understand the psychology of the moment with those musicians in particular so um if there's anything i could say to any instrumentalists you know serious instrumentalists who are thinking about going into conducting is that it's it's not exactly the same thing um, you can't <laughs> just apply your set of you know your your solo set of skills to becoming a conductor no, absolutely, you can't. Uh, and and not only is it nebulous when you do it, it's nebulous every time you change orchestra. It's nebulous. The nebulousness, uh, if that's a word, uh, gets even greater because you know each orchestra reacts differently, has a different chemistry, feel, attitude. Yeah, it's it's much different. Um, whilst we're uh, still basically in the world of violining. Um, I have seen that you've you've appeared as soloist with the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic. Uh, and other places. What's he, I mean, you know, you're very young, possibly the youngest conductor I've interviewed for the podcast. What are your plans with violin and conducting going forwards? Um, are you still playing often? Um, though I did see your fingernails were a little bit longer, so maybe you've had some time off. <laughs> um, what's your, what are your plans with the violin going forwards? Or has it, like me, gone into its case and only comes out for Boeings and high days and holidays? I think it's probably it's probably very similar to what you've just described. I think mm. my you know I I really don't play the violin a lot, um, and it's not that I don't have an interest. It's just 
I mean, are there enough hours in the day? I don't think so. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I mean, conducting takes up everything, you know. Um, Absolutely. And I, I really admire people who can who can keep on playing. But as I said, you know, for me, the light bulb moment was conducting. It wasn't mm. the violin. And I think I need to kind of, that's just the, how I feel. And that's how I've always felt. And I just, you know, that's just my way of honouring that just, um, you know, by by not playing as much. And as I, you know, you're right, I do bring it out, you know, for the occasional goings and fingerings and stuff. But um, but no, my focus is is solely on um, on learning scores right now. Isn't it all? <laughs> isn't that the way? <laughs> Absolutely. It's funny now that work is starting to, uh, very slowly starting to happen uh, here in the UK. Uh, this is now June 2021, dear listener. Um that you know I'm, I'm even finding it difficult to edit next week's podcast episode because you know that t- can take anywhere between two and a half hours to two and a half days depending on who it is and what we talked about um you know and so that that's sort of clashing with st- score study so i need a i need a good three weeks to get a few done before we totally leave the crossover between violins violin and conducting as I said, you, you you know you were in the young musician of the year twice uh, as a string finalist but you also uh one second prize in La Maestra uh, last year in 2020. Um, are co- competitions something you're going to continue applying for as a conductor? Or since getting the assistant conductor job at St. Louis Symphony Orchestra and ha- other things we're going to talk about very soon, is that something that you think, right, I've done this now, um, I don't want to do any more? Or, you know, a conductors, uh, competitions and conducting is quite a, it's quite a tricky subject, you know, um, personally i'm very lucky in the fact that i was 35 when i started conducting and, and as you'll know I, that's too old to apply for competition so i could never do it and i, I hold my hands up and say well uh, you know but for you is it something you want to carry on doing no <laughs> no, a um, nice nice easy quick answer but but the but the reason can i make that it? a bit vaguer for you <laughs> <laughs> yes the reason the reasoning behind it um uh. I find it difficult to um, to judge people on not on first impression, but on a first kind of um, imprint. And I yeah. think that's what conducting competitions sometimes do. You know, you have to go in and and try and reveal yourself. You mm. know, in about ten seconds, if not if not less. Um, obviously, that's a part of the job. And you know, everyone um, who knows anything about conducting will know that you know the orchestra basically judges you upon your entering the room so you know it, it can be it's it's a difficult one but for me personally I think um, I'm just happier working with um, with people on a sort of on a longer term basis you know a week two weeks and that's not what a competition will offer me mm. um, and that's just an important part I think of my development is moving away from that and really getting getting stuck in with ensembles for as long a period as I can and really sort of creating something that will have an end point Mm. um, that is the music really that's not just you know someone winning first or second or third prize I think for me the maestro competition was important because I wanted to be a part of the first edition of this you know what I think is a pioneering initiative Um, you know at the same time Claire Gibault the the conductor who started the competition was very clear in saying that you know the only reason why we're having an all-female um, conducting competition is so that in a couple of years time we don't need it anymore mm. and I just thought that was the most brilliant way of putting it and something that a philosophy of that I agree with um, very much so that's why I did it but no no more competitions um, for me I don't think. <laughs> Well, I'm going to pick your brains because of what you just said about the uh, La Maestra competition. You know, I, you can read on, well, you know, there's a blog that we may or may not know, uh, uh, the, uh, very clickbaity headlines that you get to see now and again on the internet uh, saying only one female finalist in out of eight in, the, in whatever competition it might be, or no females have got to the final this time. What do you think about these headlines and this? I look at it and go, well, let's go back and see how many people have applied. So if 25% of the people who applied were female, well, maybe 25% in the final would be a fair result, you know, two out of eight or whatever. 
but if only what you know, six percent applied were female, and you, there are two in the final, well, actually, that's a really good result. You know, it, it has to, you have to. So, how do you take these headlines? Do you have a feeling about them? Um, uh, because you know, some people get very, very irate about this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have a lot of feelings yeah. about this, and I think you know, any um, you know, quote unquote, female conductor, um, in a way, should. I mean, it's. It's a difficult one. I think for me, I really don't focus on um, my my view is that I'm not focusing on the outcome or, you know, how many how many women get into such and such competition or how many women don't. I think for me, the most important thing is targeting the problem at its root cause. Mm. Um, And its root cause is that, you know, sexism in the world is still rife. It is still a thing. I mean, I always say that, and, you know, I'm sure a lot of other conductors get this, you know, they say, how does it feel being a female conductor? I think my answer is always, you know, I feel more respected as a female conductor sometimes than I do as a, you know, quote unquote female. I think the Mm. world is still in a very, um, in a very tricky position in that sense. And I think for me, the only thing that I can really do is to encourage you know, especially at a young age, you know, girls to take the same opportunities or to be given the same opportunities as boys, um, as boys in schools, you know, for girls to be treated the same way as boys from an early age. I think really targeting the problem and its root cause as a sociological byproduct of, of sexism is, is the most important thing we can do. So I don't mm. really focus on, on the outcomes or how many you know, how many, you know, XYZ conductors we have in, in XYZ. I really try and just focus on making it better for the next generation because no. I don't think we're going to fix problems um, after it's too late. You know, no. we have to fix it. As I said, you know, nip it in the bud. Um, well, and I hope, I hope people can, can understand that view because I think, you know, with a lot of classical musicians um, or just classical music in, in general, you know, sometimes there's this perception that, you know, we are perceived as being kind of on the fringes of society, where, whereas a lot of really deep sociological issues really do affect us. Um, so we yeah. just need to be open to that. That's very true. Does that I answer mean, your question? Uh, it does answer my question. <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, it reminds me of Natalie Stutzman's answer to what would you change about being a conductor? And she said, losing the word female before the word conductor. You know, she's just a conductor. She shouldn't have to be always be referred to as a female conductor. And I think it's Absolutely. one of the best answers anybody's ever given to that question. Um, and, I, you know, I think actually in some respects, what's happening in the classical music world to do with conductors and composers it is more ahead uh, of other areas of society. Um, it doesn't mean that it's right or it's in the right place, but it, they are. It is more ahead, and things are happening. So, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think you answered it very well, <laughs> very well indeed. Before we go on to St. Louis, and also I want to talk to you very much about stepping in at the LSO and guesting and and going back to what you were talking about, you know, meeting an orchestra very, and how quickly people judge or view you. Um, I've noticed that you've conducted both youth groups. You've conducted the Chinica Juniors Orchestra and also amateur groups, the London Lawyers Orchestra. I'm assuming that's an amateur group. I'm, it must be. Um, some conducting teachers or mentors would say to you, yeah, do it for a little while and then pack them in and don't do them because you, your technique will be is different conducting both of those things. That is an argument. I would argue that, you know, you can. there are certain youth orchestras and amateurs I would ne- always want to conduct and I still think I conduct them exactly the same way. Um, are, are you still planning on uh, working in these areas? Uh, and have you had that said to you? Because I, I take issue with that. I know some other conductors would say, no, absolutely. Once you've got to working at a professional level, don't work with kids and amateurs. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I take issue with that, absolutely. I think um, I've been lucky enough that no one has yet told me um, or advised me um, in this way. Um, (laughs) I mean, even in, I I think education is a huge part of Mm. our lives. I mean, not only are we continuously educating ourselves, um, a part of being a conductor is sort of taking people with you. Um, And I think that can, that is a very powerful mechanism and that should be utilized. I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, especially when Mm. it comes to 
to to working with youth orchestras i mean as i said some of my most powerful experiences you know like even life-changing experiences have been as the member of a youth orchestra mm, mm. so if i'm able to participate in that you know in an event like that for a young instrumentalist then my goodness i would absolutely love to um mm. it's interesting you mentioned you mentioned the lawyers i remember um when i first got that um that gig um one of my friends said well it's always very useful to know a room full of lawyers so <laughs> you know you have to be open-minded about these things um <laughs> always about the music no um but with in st louis i mean a huge part of my job is working as the music director of the youth orchestra there and i mean that is also what attracted me to that, that position um because i mean they they're celebrating i think a hundred years of family concerts this year so i mean it's a very um, community-centered organization, which I think I really appreciate. I think as musicians, there's always more that we can do to, you know, ingratiate ourselves into a community, into the community. I mean, we live such peripatetic lifestyles as conductors, just trotting around the globe, um, you know, going from orchestra to orchestra. Isn't it wonderful to be able to be involved with people for more than a week and and you know have a kind of arc of development rather mm. than you know, as I said, a you know a a quick few rehearsals and a concert so for me that's that's very important and I, it's something that I, I really hope to be doing you know working with young people is is a gift and I think if we if we've been gifted now we should definitely use it yeah I agree I mean I've said it before and I'll say it again I think that passing on what we have what we know to the next generation uh, enthusing them you know I, I, as you said some of my greatest experiences music making were as a a child or a young adult in a youth orchestra and to to help the next generation come through and appreciate music whether they want to even be a musician or not doesn't matter appreciating it and I think with the amateurs as well if you've got a, a great group and I have two groups I work with regularly I'm loath to give in um, to hear them reach professional standards and th there be a room full of you know, in your case lawyers uh, it can often often you know my orchestra in Birmingham, I call the first violins the maths section because there are two maths professors, a physics professor, it's full of people with mathematical brains, you know, but to hear them produce something where they walk off and go back to their lives totally enriched, um, yeah, why, I think you'd be foolish not to take part in that. You've just mentioned it, St. Louis. You start soon, I would imagine. Uh, it says 21 to 22 when I look it up. You know, you just told me already you're going to be conducting youth orchestra. What other roles do you have? Do you know how many concerts you, you're going to be given? Uh, how many weeks a year you'll have to you have to be there, uh, shadowing Stefan Denev, but also uh, guest conductors. So what what's the gig? What what does it entail? What's the gig? Well, <laughs> um, I was actually supposed to start in September 2020, so this has been a long time coming. There was actually the last thing I did before. Um, the UK's first national lockdown in March. I remember I went out on March 13th or something, came back a few days later and then, you know, yeah. didn't know whether I was going to see them again, pretty much. Yeah. Um, but I was able to go in um, in March, April of, of this year and that was really wonderful. Um, just being able to, you know, at least have contact with the youth orchestra that's, you know, contact that's not purely over Zoom. Um, and also just working with Stefan. I mean, I was very lucky because he then gave me two weeks um, to do my own my own programs and my own repertoire with the with you know obviously a socially distanced um, symphony orchestra. Um, so I have had sort of an initial contact um, with them. I think what I'm most excited about, apart from my role as the music director of the youth orchestra, is working with Stefan. And I mean, yeah. you know, this goes back to what we were saying earlier about, you know, our conversation about mentors and, and who to trust and who to listen to. And I think for me, Stefan is is a brilliant music maker. He is, is a musician full of joy and and passion. I think he also compliments me very well. Yeah. Um, there are things that, you know, I think he does, which you know, I would like to learn from, I'd like to learn how he does them. I mean, it's, it's very important, I think, to also surround yourself with people who are not, you know, cookie cutter versions of yourself. <laughs> um, mm. You know, people who are very different, who have different views about music, about the world. But I think we really, we really do get on. I think I'm, I'm so, I'm so grateful to be able to work with him. So I'll be shadowing him a lot. And then I get, I get a few, a few sort of run out concerts in the US. They have these concerts whereby you go to sort of smaller satellite concert halls um, 
and and do sort of smaller programs of, of the subscription week concerts um and i also get the subscription week myself in april brilliant. 2022 yeah Lovely. yeah brilliant um i've said it before i think assistant jobs are you know if you're not gonna you don't win a competition i think uh they're the quickest and best way of just absorbing so much information so much wisdom from not only the music director but from guest conductors principal guest conductors being in a tq with an orchestra member of 30 years standing and just you know chatting to them about why that particular note on the second bassoon is is difficult to produce or whatever it is little things like that it's they're a massive resource and to all young conductors don't be sniffy about them uh i've i yeah i did my apprenticeship as a player but then you know, if I was starting out now, I'd want to go and spend a year or two years, you know, doing exactly what you're doing. Um, Absolutely. I think it's also very important as a young conductor to understand the way um, orchestras in different in different countries work. I mean, not only that, but purely, you know, from a purely organisational point of view, you know, how the mechanism of the institution um, of the orchestra works and, you know, speaking to people on the administration team, on, you know, the artistic planning side and all the, the CEOs and the fundraisers. I think if you want to eventually de develop a very, you know, a fruitful relationship or a long-term relationship with an orchestra, you really have to be ready to deal with all these other things that come with, you know, for example, being a music director or, you know, just, you know, uh, working with orchestras on a regular basis, you, you really do have to know. And it's, those people are, are very important people in the musical yes. world and they do amazing things, yeah. really do. Guesting, um, the hamster wheel of conducting, as I like to call it, um, because, you know, we love being on the wheel. Sometimes it's difficult to get off, but we love being on the wheel. You recently uh, stepped in for a, an indisposed Susanna Malky at the LSO, uh, which I would imagine that was at fairly short notice. Um, and you're at that stage now where you're, you know, you'll be doing probably more guesting than non-guesting, if that makes sense as a sentence, for quite a while. Um, how much are you looking forward to that? How much have you enjoyed what you've done, for instance, the week with the LSO? Uh, and as we were talking about earlier on, this nebulous nature, you know, uh, how are you with that? The, that There is a moment for non-conductors where you pick up your baton and you say to your, the orchestra, right, let's start the symphony. You do an upbeat and a downbeat and you have absolutely no idea what's going to come at you. Sound, when it's going to happen, how, what the attack's going to be, how they're going to take your beat. You know, the second time you go back to an orchestra, you know. Uh, and and therefore you've learned. But um, what's that like for you? And how much are you looking forward to and enjoyed what you've done already? Mm, interesting. I mean, I would just to add to what you were saying. I would, I would, you know, tentatively um, suggest that actually, even if you come back to an orchestra, um, you don't always know what to expect, um, or you shouldn't always think that you expect um well there's know, also the, the fact that you don't time. always come back to the same players you know orchestras are big enough what? for you to come back to a completely different wind of brass team for instance and maybe uh, five of the eight front string players around you are different as well i mean that, yeah. that happens you know you're absolutely yeah, it really right does. Yeah, yeah and i think that's why that kind of informs the way that i think about guesting is that you know whether i return to an orchestra or not mm. every time i step onto the podium is a new kind of reset okay yeah. hello again or hello you know let's do this it, I think for me it's very important not to necessarily be lulled into a false sense of security mm. not that we do not that what we do is dangerous but that you know we we shouldn't necessarily switch off um mm. any parts of our sort of of our senses because we we feel as though we're in a safe sort of familiar space I think that's also one of the most exciting things about it um is that you don't always know what you're what you're going to get mm. I think in terms of of guesting you know I'm sure people have said this on this podcast before but as a conductor mentally you have to be very strong mm. um, and you have to have this kind of I wouldn't say it's not an arrogance but it's a self-belief that what you are doing is the right way and that you as a person can help people get onto that track I think at the same time you have to then be it's a it's a symbiosis of things I mean it's a dynamic between you and the orchestra you are utilizing their talents sometimes mm. absolutely fantastic I mean things that 
you know even as as a as violinist you know you and I could could never do you know like Don Juan all the time you know Heldenleben all the time I mean just these relentless you know I mean you did it because you, was a, you were a violinist but I guess I'm speaking for myself you know they're <laughs> performing incredible feats and I think you have to be respectful of that and know how to channel their energies into you know fundamentally the interpretation that you want at the same time I think you have to be flexible enough not only to accept what they're presenting um, you with, but especially as a young conductor, knowing that, you know, they would have done Beethoven five, you know, 200 more times yes. um, than you. And, you know, they would have done that Mahler symphony on tour with, I don't know, Bichkov or someone like that. Yeah. So, you know, you, it is very humbling, but at the same time, I think once you get past that insecurity or that sense that, you know, you're in front of a group of players that knows more about the physical aspect of playing this piece than you might um then actually that's when the the real music making starts and that's a big step i think mm. for young conductors especially i think it's a very head screwed on correctly attitude to have uh, the only thing i i would say is that uh, where from my years of sitting in the orchestra is that there is a very very fine line between somebody who can inspire you through being very confident and knowing exactly what they want to just tipping over the other side to it being arrogance. And, and I think orchestras crave the one side of the line and they loathe the other side of the line. Uh, and and I, I think, you know, all of us at times have dr drifted on the wrong side of the line possibly. Um, but yeah, absolutely, yeah. If you go in there and you know what you want, but be willing to, to sort of accept also the hundreds of years of, of um, experience coming from the orchestra um, uh, back to you um then yeah you're absolutely in the right place and uh, and to go in and reset every time is a good thing i mean you know even with orchestras i go to regularly i walk in i say hello and i say hello to the same people some of the people you know i'm working with the cbso next week some of them i've known for 30 years but then you stand up and go right this week we're doing this and now we restart and we reset and you know we've not done this before and and it's absolutely the right attitude to have so good good on you that's a brilliant attitude to have guest conducting is a big part of a conductor's life and you may want to know more about it from how the program is chosen all the way through to the rehearsals concerts and even how we spend our free time i've started a diary over on my patreon page which lets you see how a guest conducting engagement works from every angle and my day-to-day -day thoughts about my experiences the first week is already uploaded and available to you now you can read this diary, plus all upcoming diaries, articles, essays, bonus mini-episodes, interviews, and much more when you subscribe from just £5 a month. If you pay annually, you also receive a 10% discount when you subscribe to this ever-growing resource about conductors, conducting, and what we do. Details are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, back to my chat with Stephanie Childress. Um, one last question, which you'll know that you get, you're going to get asked before the 10 questions, which is score prep. We've already discovered that your pianism skills are not quite what you wish they were. So when you come to learn a new score, I'm imagining you sit down at your desk. Do you start at bar one, go to the end? Do you listen to recordings? Or do you uh, an overall approach and then go at zero in on the details? And the important one for us geeks uh, are you a scribbler in of things? Are you a writer of notes? Are you a red, blue, black colours, highlighter pens? Or are you just completely and utterly blank score? What's your process? Gosh, that's a lot to cover. Um, <laughs> what I will say is that I do go sort of from the macro to the micro. So I mean, yeah. I'm looking at um, particularly structures, um, then you know, phrase structures, if it's sort of classical, romantic, um, even, you know, going into going into sort of mid 20th century things, if I can get away with it. Yeah. Um, I, I also try to get away of that notion, especially in classical, um, in, in classical period music, I try to get away from the idea of bar lines in themselves. So sometimes the phrase structure things can be, can be a bit, um, you know, a bit uh, too pedantic, but I just, yeah. I try and do that just so that I can learn it. Um, but I mean, I, I have a very um, kind of, I wouldn't even say sensory, but I mean, I really love watching a work in a concert hall. I think for mm. me, that's one of the most important things because you can see the players 
really reacting to to what they're doing and to the person in front of them as well but really reacting to the music and how they move with it how and I think maybe that's the player side of me coming out but actually when I'm when I'm thinking of the piece that I'm conducting I really try and visualize the people in front of me and how they move and how you know even from a practical perspective that down bow is going to work or that up bow is going to work I really try and visualize it um I think I'm not very, you know, hardcore when it comes to, you know, listening to recordings or not listening to recordings. I think sometimes, you know, especially if, if you're very busy, if you're traveling a lot, if you don't have a lot of sort of time to yourself, um, just getting the music to become a bit of an earworm by mm. a recording mm. can sometimes work. You know, it's work. I mean, this is, you know, my personal experience. I think it's worked for me. And, and from then I can sort of, from there I can extrapolate, you know, my own interpretation of what I want. And sometimes it'll be, often it'll be completely different to the recording that I've been listening to. It's not as though that recording becomes sort of my, you know, my imprint or my, yeah. um, you know, it doesn't become the thing that, um, that my interpretation resembles the most. Um, in terms of colours, I must say I I can be a bit of a puritan. I do like just using <laughs> pencils, um, but I've learned I've been you know doing a lot of opera recently, and I've learned that sometimes you know you just don't know who's singing, and you just yeah. need a, a, a little colouring you know here and there. Well, you know it does help um, quite a bit, especially when as I said when it comes to opera. Also when you're in the pit, I mean obviously you should know the score by heart, whatever. But when you're in the pit, it's so dark that a, a tiny sort of flash of colour can sometimes just sort of put you at ease. Mm. Um, so I'm I'm very open to that. It's a new dimension and I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you all about it when, um, you know, when it, that's uh, been fully fledged in my brain. But, but that's still a very new discovery. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I'm definitely not puritanical about listening to recordings. I mean, yeah, I've seen great conductors on various films say you'd be an idiot not to listen to what other great conductors do with music. You'd be an idiot not to listen to what a composer does if he conducts his own piece. Or and and you know, and we're in living in this world now where everything is available. Um, you know, when I grew up, and if I wanted to listen to a piece of music, I had to go to my local library and borrow the borrow the LP. You know, now I can literally sit at home and on my phone listen to anything, and I think you'd be crazy not to. But then, what you just said is that not one recording is your imprint. You know, if you're doing Beethoven Seven, you're not there to reproduce Carlos Kleiber's recording with the Vienna Philharmonic. You're, you know, there may be things about it that you love, but not everything. And and yeah, you you listen to whatever i mean actually i'm doing malcolm arnold's symphony number no. five next week and i realized last night it had been years since i listened to him con conducting it with the cbso so i put it on and there were things on there i thought oh, i'd forgotten about that you know whether it's going to change what i do next week is you know, neither here nor there but it's informed me and that, i think you'd be stupid not to be informed so there we yeah, are absolutely i completely agree stephanie it's that time which cannot be avoided. It's the 10 questions. And you will know that I start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? The sound or noise that I love above all others is the sound of Will Self's voice. I think if people <laughs> don't if people don't know who Will Self is, there are some brilliant podcasts of his um, floating around and also listening to him um, narrate his own works is also mm. a real experience. Amazing, it's, amazing it's, voice. It is definitely a, a voice that can only be, it is, yeah, it, it's an amazing voice. I'm interested now to know if there's somebody's voice is the sound that you hate. <laughs> We won't, we won't get, we won't go there. But I think not, interestingly about Will Self is there's not only his voices, but it's, it's really what he says as well. I mean, it's that perfect combination where you get form and content. Yeah. Um, and it just, it's my favorite thing. And the sound that you hate? I really, I really don't like it when, when, especially young children and young infants scream. And it's not, it's not the noise of so the actual scream that really bothers me just I feel that they you know they're in pain or there's something wrong and it's sort of like this sort of alert which kind of um makes me feel a bit makes me feel a bit queasy and, and sorry for them yeah there's a there's an emotion behind a specific child's noise uh having had two daughters uh still got two daughters um you know there are uh, 
there's a lot of noise with young children, you know, let's face it as parents, but there is a specific scream that you think, no, that's really painful. That's, you know, that, that really means something. And yeah, I agree with you. Uh, And, you know, you can, you can almost um, block out other people's uh, other kids noises, but then there is a certain scream where it makes every human being on the planet turn their head to find out what's gone on. You know? Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. That's the one. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Well, I would love to have 20 hours, 24 hours free in London, um, because I think it's, mm. it's, you know, I'm very biased. I was born here and I still think it's one of the most amazing cities in the world. Um, I would do quite a lot. I would start off with a good brunch somewhere, um, wander around um, the West End, maybe even pop over the river to the Globe to watch a production, see what's going on, or the National Theatre. Um, that's one thing about lockdown that I've really missed is, is mm. live theatre, um, you know, alongside live concerts. Um, maybe go to the cinema. It's another thing that I've not... I'm just basically telling you what I want to do when <laughs> after lockdown finishes. Yeah. Um, after finally it's over. No, go to the cinema, maybe catch a, catch a French film and then um, end up in a jazz club somewhere. Who would be a favourite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? Um, well, he's still with us, but um, no longer conducting is Bernard Heiting, who I think is still a great source of inspiration, both as a person, you know, the way he conducts himself on, on the podium, um, and as a musician. Um, I mean, I think as all, there's been a particular resurgence of um, Carlos Kleiber fans amongst <laughs> my colleagues and people of, of my age. I think I'd also have to go with with Carlos Kleiber. I mean, it's amazing. I, I talk to people who have worked with him and who, and who, or who have seen him, you know, perform and stuff. And I mean, it's just, they all said that his presence and his magnetism um, was truly a sort of once in a generation thing. So I would have, I would have loved to have been there, but you know, we have some wonderful recordings and some wonderful videos as well. Well, two names that appear regularly in the answer to that question, um, Kleiber more than anybody else, I would say, uh, and I think not just Young, um, but you know, all of the conductors have, have said how much you know he was an inspiration. I be it rehearsals or just even aesthetically the way he, you know, he's beat. Um, the sl- somewhat harder question, possibly, um, though I, I don't think it will be for you. Can you name some favourite current conductors? Some favourite current conductors? Well, I mean, for me, it's, you know, I've been lucky to, to assist and to sort of be mentored by some, by some really fantastic people. I mean, I think, you know, Stefan is high on my list right now. And um, I was lucky enough to work with Sir Simon Rattle as well. And that was truly an amazing experience just watching the sort of focus that he brings into a rehearsal room is really is something that I I've not seen um I don't see very often um I think another person that I would definitely have to to um to put on this list is is Vladimir Yurovsky um and I've Mm. always I've always admired the work that he did with the the LPO and I was lucky enough to assist him recently as well um and I mean the he is just a fountain of information and of knowledge. And he is so passionate about really understanding the context in which pieces were written or, you know, performed or whatnot. I mean, I think it's, he's really a, he's a historian as well as a musician. It's, it's really, truly amazing. I really appreciate that. Well, going to um, one of those, um, well, let me put it this way, dear listener, one of those conductors, uh, I'm not sure I've asked yet, one of them I've definitely asked and he said no, and one of them has not said no yet. Um, And to put you out of your misery, the one who's not said no yet uh, is Sir Simon Rattle, and I'm hoping to get for episode 100. I wonder, you know, when he mentors you and when he talks to you, uh, is he really going in on specifics or, um, I mean, I, I, I took up conducting after he'd left uh, Birmingham, so I never had the chance. I asked him one question once about batons and, and he was very helpful. But what's he like as a sort of mentor teacher? I mean, brilliant. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I'm, you know, if I'm allowed to say he's a mentor teacher. I mean, I've worked with him a few times, yeah. but it's, it's really wonderful to have someone who kind of, it's never really a specific question, nor is it a specific answer. Um, but he has a way of thinking about music, um, which is which is very practical, which I think yeah. is very helpful as a conductor. 
but he translates that into a very kind of holistic um, a holistic sense. I mean, I don't know if I'm making any sense. It's it's something that is that is very very enigmatic and that you can't quite put your finger on. But I think for me, he encapsulates what um, the kind of knowledge and the kind of way of the methods as well that um, that one needs to be a conductor. So I think that's that's one that's something that I've you know tried to learn from him. In short. You know, having sat through hours, literally hundreds of hours of rehearsal under Simon, there are many times now as a conductor, I think to myself, what would Simon be doing here? Or what would absolutely. Simon say here? And that's, you know, 20 odd years later. So, mm. yeah, it's absolutely, yeah, it's the, it's... And you're, and you're quite right. I mean, he gives, he also gives great advice. So yeah. that's, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. you know, really, yeah. I've, I've gone to him with, with a lot of conundrums and he's always sort of managed to, to pick the right answer. Yeah. So. <laughs> wonderful what is the hardest work you've ever conducted i conducted brahms 2 when i was too young um and <laughs> oh, I'm, it laughing. Was a... I'm laughing out loud i'll <laughs> tell you why in a minute but go on <laughs> and you know we all we all make mistakes you know we're not we're not we're only human um but that was sort of my big my big mistake thankfully you know it was a small i was very young as a, a student orchestra very very small thing but um yeah that was traumatizing um because it's a difficult piece and brahms is is a difficult composer i think i really the more i the older i get the more i realize that i think um I still think his music is is absolutely fantastic, but I'll definitely be be putting Brahms to um, to one side for for the next couple of years. But <laughs> an amazing work. There, you know, there are loads of scary pieces that um, I happily do, but uh, Brahms too is is not one of those right now. <laughs> well, I wonder. It's probably for completely different reasons. But the reason why I was laughing and chuckling out loud was when I first started conducting. I I was lucky enough to be asked to conduct a local amateur orchestra in Birmingham, which I still conduct. And the minute they asked me to put together three programs for the, the first year I was going to do it, I immediately put Brahms 2 on that list. I didn't conduct it again for 16 or 17 years, and it was again with the same orchestra. I just wouldn't do it again. I think that was partly because, and it's funny, going back um, two questions, it's partly because I was totally in love with Carlos Kleiber's performance, uh, with the Vienna Phil, which goes all the way back to listening to recordings and not trying to reproduce anything. Whether I was trying to reproduce it or not, I don't know. But it, I had a similar experience with the Eroica, with the same orchestra in the same season. I immediately wanted to do it again. I immediately wanted to work out what I'd done wrong and why I'd find it so difficult. And by getting back on the horse or on the bike, I sorted it out, but I had no interest in doing that with Brahms 2 at all. I was just happy to listen to it. I'd go and cut to concerts and watch it. I didn't want to conduct it again. Now I think I've worked it out, but it took 17 years of, you know, putting it on the, literally on the back burner or even it on ice and just, you know, I'm not touching that until I'm older, better, wiser, and then it'll be fine. Uh, so Absolutely. that's why I was I think, laughing. Yeah. I, well, no, it's it's a it's a good, it's the appropriate reaction. I think, especially <laughs> as Carlos Kleiber, you know, as wonderful as he is, you know, he sort of, you know, that piece is just so so tied up with with him as a person, him as a musician. I think he, you know, in a way, it makes our job even more difficult when we approach Brahms too. But I mean, what a wonderful challenge to have. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? I, I find it physically difficult to leave the house without a book. And it can't, can't exactly be any book. I really love fiction, I must say. And it's something that I, especially, you know, growing up in a, and going to school in France, I mean, we were really encouraged um, to read a lot. Um, so I would, you know, if I could, I'd take a nice, a nice Zola or, you know, maybe I'm getting into some Flaubert as well. So just maybe like a really, a really big sort of French book would be absolutely perfect. I think they, there's some wonderful stuff out there. And very necessary on those weeks guesting, as we were talking about earlier on, when you are 
alone uh, and uh, dinner for one and a book can be quite a nice time um, rather than <laughs> rather than dinner for one and staring at all of the other people eating which is very very miserable. <laughs> well I'm, I'm an only child so I feel as though this the lifestyle sort of kind of suits me very well I'm very happy to just sit sit down you know on a park bench and with a book and you know stew in my own thoughts. Yeah yeah um number eight what's the one thing you would change about being a conductor only one um, you know you, you can change more than one if if they're if they're very if they no if they're good things change as much as you like i mean go for it i mean i would love to i mean i try you know i strive to do this in my own life um but i would love to to feel as though conductors could be more um more involved in the political sphere i'm not talking about necessarily politics per se mm. um but just be more involved in in helping musicians or you know being um being on the musicians union and really understanding sort of how those things work and how as people with a certain degree of 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 you know leadership capabilities we can actually utilize those skills to help the very people you know with whom we're working i think it's what i see especially in in the uk happening is you know we we're suffering some tremendous cuts to the arts and i think we need people who can really stand up and and try and try and make a difference and i i hope to see to see more of that i think especially with the younger generation i think it's and especially since covid i think a lot of people have had a sort of an an awakening of sorts whereby, you know, we do feel as though we have a voice and we can, um, as artists, we can actually really make, um, generate effective change. So I really, that would be, that'd be quite nice. I think people still tiptoe around it nowadays and, and conductors do, and rightly so, because it's a very, it's, it's like walking on eggshells. It can be very tricky, but I think for me, that's something that I'd love to see. And I'd love to feel as though I, I could be encouraged into, into things like that. Well, I think, you know, over history or over at least the 30 odd years I've been involved in uh, music, classical music professionally in this country, you know, there are some people who stick out as wanting to be involved in everything from grassroots music making up through salaries and to, you know, funding of orchestras across the country. People like Simon Rattle, for instance, obviously uh, are people that stand out. I think there are other conductors who really haven't done that because they're from other countries countries that maybe you don't need to do that because of the cultural attitude towards music in their own country and they've not been brought up thinking that they need to fight for their corner um but yeah i, I think more people it's it's a big subject i think you know it, it a lot of it's got to do with how invested in the orchestra the music director or the conductor is um whether they even live there you know it, that i think that often can be a big thing you know if uh, I think if you live in Birmingham, you get a feeling for what Birmingham was about, and then maybe you've got more ch chance or willingness or want to want to fight their corner for them. And the same is in Manchester, and especially in somewhere like Liverpool, which has got such a character of its own. Um, but again, doesn't mean that all conductors want to do it, but I think more should. And, and maybe a return to the older days where a conductor lives where the job is. And I know Bramwell Tovey said, you know, he, he's turned down jobs elsewhere because he doesn't want to move from where he is. You know, he, he can't sort of flying in and flying out. You don't feel that you can invest in the community. And I think that's the important thing, isn't it? That's what you're talking about is being investing no, in the community, not only the community of players working in the orchestra, but who they're serving around them, the city, the town, whatever it is, and having, uh, you know, yeah. vested interest in it all. Absolutely. I think, you know, due to the climate emergency, a lot of I know a lot of agencies are trying to, you know, reduce, um, reduce their air travel and things like that. I mean, I think the climate emergency is going to push a lot of a lot of people like us into very into not difficult positions, but into new, new scenarios, um, mm. whereby, you know, you can't always, you know, hop across the Atlantic and, and do things or you can't justify, you know, always hopping, um, hopping up across the Atlantic and things like that. So, it's a big question, but I think, you know, as long as we start really asking ourselves um, these questions and discussing it amongst ourselves and, and with, you know, instrumentalists and, and, um, and managers and stuff, I think we can generate some, some substantial change. And I think it needs it, you know, as I said, you know, our organizations in the UK are continuously having their, their uh, funding cut and, you know, something needs to be done. Otherwise 
it'll be a very difficult, um, it'll be very difficult for the next generation. I really do believe that. So do I. Here, here. I, I completely agree with you. Um, yeah, spent far too long on Twitter saying all of that sort of stuff, and will continue to do so. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll join you in the cause. <laughs> yeah. Number nine. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I really, I really like languages, and I like learning languages. I think for me... Um, I feel that if I were ever to have a midlife crisis, you know, my 40s, 50s, I would just sort of go to a mountainous area of, of France or somewhere and shut myself in a shed and, and translate. Um, particularly, there's a lot of sort of surrealist um, texts by, you know, verse texts by, um, by French surrealist um, writers who, I don't, I just, you know, I'd be reading these things like Louis Aragon, and trying to get translations to my English friends. They're like, oh, this is such great stuff. Like, I really want you to read it and not being able to find any translation. So I ended up translating a, a large part of, of some of his works um, just so I could give it to my friends. So I think that, you know, you know, when the midlife crisis hits, that'll be, <laughs> that'll be where I am. And that's sort of my, you know, in my alternate uh, reality, I'd love to have been a translator. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm very envious of people who speak more than one language. I struggle with the one I've actually, you know, I, the one I use in this country. Um, you know, I can basically rehearse in German. I can very basically rehearse in Spanish. Uh, but yeah, I do wish I'd spent more time listening in my German lessons and listening in my French lessons at school. Uh, and it's got to the stage now where every time I learn a new word, it seems to take longer and longer to stick in the brain. Um all but, that happens is you learn a new word. This is what happens with me. I learn a new word and then a word that I already know in a different language will just pop out. It's kind of like a one-in, one-out policy. <laughs> it's very, very upsetting. <laughs> Linguistic Jenga, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, until eventually <laughs> the, all of the blocks will fall to the floor. Um, finally, uh, my favourite question of them all, if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? I think the important thing is that it would be a big meal, mm. um, lots of things to fit in there. So I would definitely have um, a roast chicken. I think for me, roast chicken, potatoes, and and you know, an assortment of vegetables is is kind of one of the one of that those dishes that sticks out to me as a childhood dish and a dish that I I keep enjoying um, now and I hope to keep enjoying. Um, I think after the roast chicken, we would definitely have to go to a Chinese restaurant. I think you know, for me, um, Chinese food, well, Chinese food, especially coming from, you know, Sichuan and Shanghai, those types of cuisines are just, for me, absolutely gobsmacking. So if I yeah. could have a sort of proper roast um, and then follow that up with uh, a trip to one of my favorite Chinese restaurants, I would be very happy. And I would probably succumb, um, not from whatever ailment um, would get me, um, but yes, I definitely succumb by the amount of food. Uh, <laughs> and, and, but I'd be quite happy with that. That's all right. And what would we be washing it down with? We'd be washing it down with, um, gin and tonics first. Um, I've never been a huge cocktail person, although I've met a lot of conductors. I don't know if this has happened on this podcast, but I've met a lot of conductors who who like to think that they're really into cocktails. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> maybe it's that's the reason, that's like my Pavlovian response um, to avoid cocktails. Um, so I would just have a gin and tonic and a lovely, a lovely burgundy wine would be lovely. Um, and maybe if I had to have a white wine, just a nice Chablis beforehand. Well, it all sounds good to me. I, twice I've given the answers for my final meal, an Argentinian steak in Argentina. But every, both times I've come very close to saying Chinese food because I love Chinese food. Um, and so, yeah, I'll happily, sounds very good to me. And yeah, overeating and sort of being far too debauched is uh, sounds like a wonderful way to finish. Um, and this is to finish now. It's been wonderful to chat to you. Um, and I hope very soon that our paths cross and uh, bump into you and we can maybe share a gin and tonic or, or a conductor's Absolutely. cocktail, whatever that might be. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. A Mic on the Podium is devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. 
Next time, I chat to a British conductor who, after studying French and UK law, went on to study piano and conducting in Vienna, and then entered the German Kapellmeister system, eventually becoming general music director in Braunschweig. His career since has been highly successful in both the Opera House and the Concert Hall. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>